And we are live. What's up, guys? Roy here, and you are listening to the Balance Mail podcast series. Today's episode is another installment of We Were in a Cult, where I am talking to people that were members of the church that I grew up in and the ICOC, and we're just trying to sort of have an open dialogue about our lives in a church that is called a cult in some circles or a lot of circles. And uh, today I have former member Shannon. Go ahead and say hi, Shannon. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Um, Yeah, this is going to be, this is fun. All right. The biggest question I, or the first question I start with is, were you a kingdom kid or were you met into the church? Oh, I was a kingdom kid. I think I was mm, maybe two when my mom was met and joined. And so it's all I remember. I wasn't technically like born into the church with like two parents that got married at, you know, in the church. And then I didn't come about that way. But um, as far as I can possibly remember, that was me. Good old kingdom kid. Oh, yeah. It's it's so fun to say that word out it's loud. It's triggering, honestly. I'm like kingdom kid. Because uh-huh. <laughs> it's very specific. You know, it's not that's not talking about any child that's raised in like a Christian household, a kingdom kid is an ICOC kid. Yep. We were, our church was the, was the kingdom. And so we were the kids in the kingdom. That's right. It's also sharp. That's a word that I find is triggering for people. I don't know if you guys use that where y'all were sharp, sharp. I don't think so. Extreme. I mean, when we got to teens, it was extreme teens, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know if we used sharp. Yeah, Eddie- any person that was like you could probably put in the forefront and use to like move this this giant thing, you were sharp. So it was basically like you looked good, you were spoke well, you know, those type of things. So I would say that had our church used that term as much as wherever you were, um, mm-hmm. I probably would have fallen into that category just because. I was constantly like one of the kids that, well, first of all, I'm, I'm a singer and a performer and naturally comfortable in front of people. So they were always, you know, putting me on stage and having me be a representative. Yeah. You, <laughs> I was the opposite. So I probably would have had grudges against you or been like, oh my gosh, they're putting her on stage again. Oh, I'm um, sure there's plenty of people who felt that way. <laughs> oh Yeah. Um, (laughs) so, so yeah. Um, so like, what was your first, like, how was God presented to you? What do you remember God being as a kid? And yeah. Well, you know, my mom was raised, I think more kind of agnostic, like Mm -hmm. Jesus was not a thing in her home. So when she was met, she was around 30 years old. So in a way it was really wonderful because her relationship with God wasn't something that uh, like made her forget everything that like the rest of her life had been before she turned 30. So she was pretty reasonable. I would say more reasonable than a lot of other adults in ICOC. Um, And so I just remember God always just being part of the picture. She was reading her Bible in the morning and we would pray as a family and I think by the time I was old enough to understand the concept, I I saw God as this goal. I would call it more of a goal for me of 
I wanted to do things well. I've always been someone who wanted to to do things right, to mm-hmm. be impressive, right? And so when you're raised in this church where it's your whole world, the most impressive thing you can do is uh, be the most spiritual. So yeah. I didn't necessarily, I had a personal relationship with God, of course. And I, you know, I still do. And we can talk about that because I do think it's, I'm of the lesser category of, of people who've left that still mm-hmm. have a strong relationship with God. Um, but that took a lot of time. That's down the line for later in our conversation. But I would say, you know, at the beginning, God, I had that personal relationship, but I would say the driving factor for that relationship was uh, to be accepted and seen as good. And Mm -hmm. so I would say my relationship with God was very fear-based. I know that is very common in ICOC. Even as a young kid, I had a lot of anxiety, not wanting to go to hell. And um, so like, while I did find some comfort in God, I would say a lot of it was just this internal hamster wheel of like, what else can I do for approval and to not go to hell? Like it was just that constant feeling. And that was from the beginning, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, I would say from the beginning. I mean, I honestly have a terrible memory. And so remembering my thoughts and feelings from when I was really young, like under 11, I don't Mm -hmm. really know that much. Um, But I would say by the time I developed my own sense of God and can remember that, I do remember that sense of um, urgency. Yeah, I'm glad you, you talked about the urgency and the works sort of aspect of it and a goal like God was something that we could attain. Right. The relationship was we can attain. I think that feeling of separate from him, from God was a big deal. I remember feeling that as a kid um, and that you had to do these things to, to reach God. Right. You couldn't, you couldn't just engage with God. Just, Hey, you know, walk out into the, the yard, you know, there were things that you needed to be doing to have that relationship with him. Right. I always thought he was mad at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, always thought mm-hmm. I was pretty much always in trouble with God because you yes. know, separating the God from church mm-hmm. wasn't a thing. I mean, you know, the, the whole breakdown of how they um, organized mm-hmm. their systems was that you couldn't separate their organization from God. And mm-hmm. so they're constantly, you're constantly being told by them that you're wrong, wrong, wrong. And I know we'll get more into what that looked like, but when you're constantly doing that from them, it feels like it's coming from God because there's no separation between the organization and God. Yep. The words that they were saying were God's words. The church was God's church. Everything was from God. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That feeling of like God being mad at me, like, I think I don't think I ever felt good. Mm-hmm. There was always something that I was trying. I w- I would be good after this, or like once I got to hear kind of feelings and thoughts. Right. Wow. Um. So. So did that sort of that just continued on as you got into the teens? That feeling. Yeah. Did, did it get worse? I would say, in some ways it definitely got worse and i would say my motivation certainly became more deeply entrenched with my reputation so and just like just the reality of it being my only social outlet 
Uh It made me, for instance, I look back at my baptism. I was baptized at age 12 and I do early. Um, I've always been very good at communication and Mm. uh, literature and all those things. So studying the Bible, I was very good at giving the correct answers at understanding what the scriptures were saying, understanding what the people studying wanted me to say and Mm do. Um, And so there was that part of piece of the puzzle. There was a piece of the puzzle that I was (laughs) a little bit um, boy crazy Mm -hmm. uh, from a young age, like at 12. (laughs) And so I had had a an experience with a boy at age 12 that kind of freaked me out. And I was like, uh, I need to do something to be be better and to mm-hmm. to make sure I don't do that kind of thing again. And so I really dove into the scriptures then. So I would say that's the God piece where I did actually have like a conscious that was God driven, not just reputation driven. Um, uh-huh. But then, you know, as you know, when you are studying the Bible, it gave me something to confess as well. Right. Because when you're 12, oh, yeah. I mean, like, mm-hmm. how much do you have? I mean, so there there was that. Um, but then. I the, the other piece of the puzzle, speaking of being boy crazy, was that I was getting ready to go to my first year of teen camp instead of our camp, which is our uh, camp is the summer camp for kids. And then you graduate and go to teen camp, which is for everyone 13 and up. And so at teen camp, you get to go on dates if you're a disciple and a disciple, yeah. as you know, is a member, has been baptized, gone through the studies and the whole thing. And so I remember really wanting to be able to go on dates at teen camp. And so I was like, I need to get through these studies and get baptized. <laughs> so like, I look back at my baptism and I I admit, like, it it's taken me a while, you know, in my adulthood as I rediscovered and redeveloped my relationship with God to get past this, like, wondering feeling like was my baptism legitimate or did I literally just do that so I can go on dates I don't really know right but yeah. um mm-hmm. yeah so I would say there was that so social pressure too because that was the whole world I knew so if I was going to date and like boys and have friends and be considered good and accepted then yeah. I needed to do all of the things to get there and so mm-hmm. there there was an aspect that was genuine with my relationship with God, but we cannot ignore the other driving factors. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of things that I'm definitely going to come back to, but I I wanted to start with that idea of, you know, the heart was there, but the heart and the works, it's like, you couldn't have one or the other. Like Mm -hmm. you had, you had a motivation, but you knew that getting this thing was going to allow these other things Right. And to get those things was this works that you had to do. And you mentioned the studies and oh, those studies. Um, they were something. But like to be baptized at 12, like it's triggering for me. Like it's always triggering for me to watch someone younger, like a kid, get baptized because there was this sense that like you had like you weren't gonna be ready then. You had to be in high school to really like accept this like even like um i've been visiting churches out here in virginia beach as sort of like research into like all of this and like they were it was baptism sunday there and this this little boy who's like eight or nine was getting baptized and i was like how 
I don't remember being you would have been allowed to do that. You know, oh, certainly not ICOC because, you know, yeah. and I've experienced this difference, too. Right. Watching mm-hmm. uh, how churches operate that aren't ICOC now mm-hmm. in my adulthood. And um, I think one of the reasons that kids in Protestant churches, obviously, we're not talking about baby baptisms in Catholicism, yeah. but in Protestant mm-hmm. churches that are getting baptized younger than ICOC would allow is because um, it is not works driven and yeah. it's grace driven and uh <clears throat> and these kids can understand they don't have to like repent in the way that the uh, icoc presents it i mean obviously repentance is important as you um as you become a christian that's something that's i think very valid when you look at the bible um but the way that they presented repentance was this um like no you're expected to like not really have a journey of growth it's expected that it's a pretty overnight switch um mm-hmm. and i think the the rest of the churches in the world generally see it as the start of your growth journey and your your journey towards learning how to live in a in a life that would please god but it's not expected that this is going to be an overnight change and so yeah. for kids it's like okay they're not going to be perfect overnight and understand every concept, but this is the beginning of their journey, dedicating their life to God. Um, mm-hmm. it, can a, an eight-year-old really make that decision? I don't know. I have some friends now as adults who say that they got baptized when they were eight and their hearts have been with God ever since. And I'm who am I to say that that's not you know, accurate? Have they had to do a lot of growth and learning? Absolutely. And hopefully they still are. But um, yeah. I, I think it's just that difference of ICOC was very much like once you are a member, there are expectations attached yeah. to that, uh, which are different. Yeah, it, it it just felt like you could never just trust your heart. Like I couldn't I could never say, no, I believe this. I feel this. I want to get baptized. It's like, OK, you feel this. Well, let's, you know, there's the 12 step process in order to get to the baptism. And, you know, you talked about the studies and and that was such a hard thing, (laughs) even though you talked about, you had something to confess and you, there was this like feeling of, of outward sign that Mm -hmm. you had to like, you know, we had our sin and repentance study and you had to, there, you know, where you wrote out all the sins. Did you have to do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and then we would have to repent about it. And they're always looking for that one juicy thing that would get you like super broken, you know? Well, you had to kind of prove it to them. Right. Because I remember that feeling too, before getting baptized, like feeling like I'm ready, like I want to live for God, but I had to prove to them. And you know, what's interesting regarding the studies is that something that in the last year, even I've um, done a deeper dive of trying to understand kind of what those studies were all about, because I, yeah. I'm all about studying the Bible, like mm-hmm. a big fan over here um, and making it ap- applicable to our lives. Like that's to me the point of the word. So why were those studies? So like I look back and I'm like, I just feel tense. Like, why are they this this step by step process of of approval to join this organization. And so I started doing some research and actually found some uh, YouTube videos and even some podcasts from former ICOC members too that uh-huh. were from the area that I grew up in. And they broke down every single study. Yeah. Um, it's on YouTube. It's so good. Uh, Nikita 
Lambert and Asha Glenn have these videos. I highly recommend looking up and they break down why they these studies uh, utilize brainwashing techniques, like how they do that in order to by the end, you basically have no choice but to get baptized, become part of this organization. And they've already then alienated you from um, everyone else in your life because of the way they presented it. And I didn't realize until watching these videos, I had this feeling that these studies felt weird to me. And do I think the people giving the studies, doing the studies with people now are aware of the brainwashing mechanisms within them? Absolutely not. I don't think most people know. Certainly I didn't know when I was studying the Bible with people after I was a disciple and trying to make new members. Like I wasn't aware that I was utilizing brainwashing tech like um techniques, but um they're there. And so, yeah. you know, they start with counting, you know, or not counting the cost, obviously. I forget all the um how they start, but basically the word, oh, I right? Could, you talk I could, about the word. Yeah, I could tell you the whole order. I was writing about this all were you? Okay, yeah. so, so correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but you start with the word study. And so therefore, yep. anything the Bible says, which we're showing you, you have yeah. to, to you have to believe and do. And uh-huh. they will oftentimes kind of tell you to avoid commentary and devotionals and that kind of thing, because only the word is the word of God, not the commentary of other yeah. people, which now looking back, they were uh-huh. giving commentary. They were telling you which scriptures to turn to and telling you what their interpretation of those scriptures were. Um, exactly uh-huh. right but they wanted to make sure that you were not listening to any other nope. christian mm-hmm. except for them when it came to what they wanted you to read and how to interpret those scriptures and that was the very first study so from there then you start feeling weird like okay i i can only study the bible through these people right um what's the next one roy well for me it started discipleship was mm. the first study because then you learn what it takes to be a disciple and you would go into the definitions. Mm-hmm. Then we would do the word, which is exactly what you were saying. And it was always that sense of like, like, don't question the Bible. Don't question us. Mm-hmm. You know, you would, you, they would use all of these, these scriptures. Um, it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's the word of God. And you would, you know, like you were saying, no, this, these words come exactly from God. Mm-hmm. Um, and they build off each other, right? Because if I, that you're right, discipleship comes first. So what that's mm-hmm. doing is setting the foundation and expectation that yeah. you are not doing what you're supposed to do as a Christian unless you have these discipleship relationships, which means this is a discipleship relationship. We're studying the Bible t- together. So this uh-huh. is a reflection of doing what's right for God, which then yep. gets people to come back and continue these studies because they yep. are told in that very first one, you need this relationship mm-hmm. if you're going to be a Christian. Yeah. And then it builds on to that. So then they they have these starting to come and you're mm-hmm. invested now because of that first study in this discipleship relationship. And so then they move into the word so that everything they're saying is now based. They are saying it's the scriptures, but really yep. it's everything they're teaching you is a reflection of God. So now they've built on the discipleship and now they have the power because yep. they have the word of God on their side. Right. Um, yep. And you start moving through these studies and I don't necessarily need to go through every single one, but when Asha and Nikita broke it down like that, and by the time you get to sin and then you have to share so vulnerably, right? And then you, um, Mm -hmm. so you're now attached to these people and attached to them. And then you have counting the cost. So that's alienating you from the other people in your life. You have to say, who am I willing to have a close relationship with if they're not Christians and counting the cost of what you have to sacrifice in order to be a true Christian. And you are now attached to these people because of the vulnerability involved here. Um, 
you know, and they just build and build and build until you it's true brainwashing and and cult like uh, uh, techniques that separate you from the rest of the world, the rest of, of how you're supposed to think, who you're supposed to believe, who you're supposed to yeah. be friends. With. And you, like you said, you are required to question yourself. Everything yeah. has to go through uh, their lens. And so you you're no longer allowed to uh, form opinions, thoughts decisions without their involvement and that is the real uh the real rub and the real disconnect from what the bible actually says yeah it was exactly like that and, and you uh <clears throat> i do need to point out that like after you know the sin you would have the cross study where you would learn about what jesus did mm -hmm. and so that invokes this visceral emotional attachment to the sin that you've done put jesus on the cross and you're supposed to feel broken. And for me, it was always like, I had to do the studies four times before they said I was ready. Um, like, I remember when I finally cried in the cross study that I finally felt like, okay, I showed them that I'm, I'm broken and I'm there. Uh, but then there was the denominational study, which was where we would learn every denomination of Christianity and then where it comes from. And then the part that always got me was why they were wrong. Mm -hmm. which was like you're talking about it's alienating showing you that no this is the only path you know i mean we talked about methodists and why they're wrong baptists and why they're wrong even got to like rastafarianism and why they're wrong it's it so just... ridiculous and if you look at the scriptures mm -hmm. jesus makes it really clear yeah. <laughs> that he is not into all of this differentiation and um gosh i was just reading last night a uh, scripture i want to say uh maybe it was in first or second Timothy, but like the Bible is very clear that, uh, you know, seeking these um, dissensions mm -hmm. is not at all what Jesus wants. You know, I mean, there's so many scriptures that he's like, listen, if you feel like that's a sin, then that's a sin. If you don't, then just like, don't do it in front of them because that's going to make them struggle. But like, it's okay. It's where your heart is. It is yeah. not about all mm -hmm. of these details. And the church, ooh, the ICOC loved their details. Loved yeah, their details. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, but what's always so crazy is to think about you went through this at 12. Mm -hmm. Like you went through the studies at 12. And so from a young, young age, this is put into your brain and your heart, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's what oh, it just it freaks me out to think about those type of like having such a hard stance so early in life. Oh, it's you know. so ridiculous. And you become so conceited. I yeah. mean, conceit is outrageous because you think you're the only Christian. Yeah. And you're told that because they approve of you becoming a disciple in their organization, now you are this secret or top tier club that gets it, right? Like you really get it. And nobody else, no, uh, you know, gosh, you know, Young Life and all these other, you know, organizations in your school, mm -hmm. they are all misled. They are watered down Christians and they just are not disciples of Christ, right? And they're so not sold out. <laughs> they're not sold out. And they and they're not saved. They're not going to heaven. And mm -hmm. so you are walking around at age 12, 13, 14, whatever your frontal lobe is like so far apart from the from being closed and you think you have all the answers to the world. You think that yeah. you you are mm -hmm. part of this chosen group of people who actually get it, right? And it mm -hmm. it is so uh, ridiculous. I, I don't have another word for it to, to 
offer that level of like personal clout. And it's an interesting combination, right? Because you are walking around with this idea that you are different and you are set apart from the world. And, um, and it's more extreme than any other Christian group. You can, of course, like look in the Bible and we are set apart as disciples and children of God and all of that. But I'm talking like a distinct separation. You don't have friends. You don't do anything with these human beings outside of the church. At least in my experience, I was very, very much like Mm -hmm. if I'm talking to someone who is not in church at an extracurricular activity, like I am not going to be able to go over to their house and just be friends with them. I can be friends with them at the activity or if I want to see them outside of that, I need to be inviting them to church and making seeing if they can become part of this community. Um, and so there but there's this thing where you, you're walking around thinking that you have all the answers and you're walking around constantly in a state of anxiety because within the organization that you're told you don't have any you don't know anything. You are yeah. always mm-hmm. just in the wrong you have to come up with things to make sure that you are confessing to your disciple every week in that very scary cult-like, um, you know, organization, kind of like an, almost like an MLM, right? Like everybody yeah. has a tier above them, which again is a control tactic. A very, <laughs> I mean, that is a, a scholastic, academically proven control tactic that you always have someone that you report to and then someone reporting to you. And so when you're in that there, you have to meet weekly with your discipler to, And the purpose of that is accountability, right? To confess. Mm -hmm. If you are going through your week and you don't have something that like major to confess, you know, you're like, "Mm, I was like kind of jealous of this girl or I was, you know, then you start just trying to think of stuff like, oh, I was having impure thoughts or I wanted this or I wanted that. And so you're so focused on all the like tiny things that maybe might not even have been a real bad thought, but you have to confess something to prove that you are humble and know that you are just the worst. And so you're doing that in your inner circle. And then on the out, outer circle, you feel like you are um, special and different and mm-hmm. have the answers that people at school and extracurriculars don't have. And it's, it's just a bizarre juxtaposition. Yeah, it's so, it's so bizarre. And it's like you could never be like, okay with being okay. Mm-mm. You know, I'm. It, it, they're always like you said. There always had to be something you were talking about, something you were doing, something you were working out. Um, and that's like sort of followed me as I've left church. That feeling of like I can't be settled when things are good, you know. And that right, feeling they, of then you're just comfortable. You're just getting yeah. too comfortable, and that's when sin comes in. Yeah, it is. And that feeling of like I'm a bad person. It just that, that like at the core, I'm a bad person. And that only comes from all of those things that we were in that like feeling of always having to be looking for something, always having to be confessing something, never being comfortable with being good. Um, And it's crazy to think like from 10,000 feet above, which kind of where we are now and looking back on it, it's like, how could we have stayed in? But like, you know, we were born into this. This was the only thing that we knew. Right. It was, the, it was the only thing we knew. I mean, there there wasn't I don't look back and um, place blame on myself or even my mom. I, I you know, I just yeah. don't, mm-hmm. uh, I don't feel like that's productive. And and it wasn't our fault. I mean, we yeah. anyone who's in the church, I don't blame them. You know, I mean, I mm, let me rephrase that. There oh, are some yeah. people <laughs> that I think uh, mm-hmm. have 
gotten out of hand and certainly certain people in leadership positions need to be held way more accountable all of that but like as a whole i don't look at all the members of the icoc and like think that this is their fault all of them have gone through the brainwashing as well at the beginning and then the longer you're in it the more the um entrenched you are you know yeah um mm-hmm. so there's an, almost no getting through to people you just can't i've learned that i tried i'm this is a story i'm happy to tell if you want me to but like i tried to get together with a leader at the church uh maybe seven years ago and this is long after i left i left let's see i'm 35 i left when i was 18 so it's been a minute and um i had been out of the church for almost 10 years at the point that I met with her, probably around 10 years. Uh, yeah. So I was very well removed. I had stepped away from my relationship with God for years and then refound my relationship with God, come back to it and had to redevelop it from the ground up, right? Because I certainly didn't know how to have a relationship with God that wasn't attached to this organization. And I knew I was never going back to the organization. So like, how was I supposed to uh, form any sort of relationship with God. So it was a lot of work. So uh, I would say three or four years into that rebuilding journey, when I felt really confident in my new perspective and relationship with God, I thought, you know, I don't, like you said, I don't blame these people. And I think, I think the intention is good. Like we just want to live by the Bible and um, they, yeah. And I think they've just let the legalism get out of hand. Like this uh, way of getting you to not sin has just turned into rules and and regulations and control. Uh, But I think the intent is just is to not sin. So, I mean, that's a good intention. And my biggest concern was how many of my friends who had left didn't have any relationship with God at all. And as somebody who had come back to my faith and and found it to be, you know, it is, it's what it's supposed to be life changing and, and peace giving and all of those things. I want that for everybody. I certainly do. Um, and so I thought maybe I could offer some insight to the current leaders of why, especially kingdom kids, when they leave, tend to just not believe at all anymore and never come back to the faith. And to me, that's really sad. And I would imagine that these people, if I don't blame them and they have good intent, don't want to see that either. So can I share with them some of our experiences leaving as to why that happens? And so I got together. I asked one of the leaders, do you want to get together? Hadn't seen her in 10 years. And, um, you know, my, and I won't go, I won't break off into this story, but, you know, my experience leaving was very traumatic and very dramatic. And this person heavily involved with that. And, Anyway, so I got together with her at Starbucks and I said, hey, I just I wanted to share some things that looking back 10 years, like I can confidently now say I don't think are biblically uh, sound that happened. And I don't want kingdom kids to continue to leave in droves and just not have a relationship with God at all anymore because that's doing more damage than it is good. Like that's not bringing people to heaven. So can I share this with you in hopes that you guys can do something a little different next time to preserve these relationships with God for these people. And it just fell on deaf ears. No matter what I said, Mm -hmm. she just wanted to talk about my sin when I was 18, 10 years earlier, you know, like, like the most ridiculous things, or she would bring up, uh, you know, other friends of mine who had left and be like, well, did you know that she did this? I'm like, ma'am, you are 50 years old and you're worried about what my friend did when she was 12. And 
I'm not. What? Like, it was just so insane. Like, there was just no getting through to her. No matter what insanity I brought up, I'm like, hey, did you know so and so texted me 10 days after I left the church? And it was the Virginia Tech shooting. I was a freshman at CNU, which is only a couple hours from tech. A bunch of my friends were at tech because I was, you know, I was a freshman. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it was awful. It was obviously a devastating event. And I had left 10 days before that happened. And I got a text from the campus leader saying that could have happened at CNU and it would have been you and you would have gone to hell. And I hope you take this as like a warning and like God showing you what can happen. Like some really messed up stuff that I'm sorry, anybody with any form of yeah. um, uh, an empathetic and logical brain would say, oh, yeah, that's wrong. Nobody should be sending a text message like that. I could I brought up that story and that was met with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. rebuttal right so you know there's no getting through when things are that extreme and i continue not to blame that person um also because blame involves uh your own feelings of mm-hmm. bitterness and frustration and i just don't want to hold any of that like that's that's just punishing myself uh so as much as i think she needs to be held accountable as a leader in the church i do understand that like there are some depths of this brainwashing and cult like behavior that you just can't reach. And it's not even that person's really their fault anymore because they are just so deep that they are so blind to obvious, just messed up stuff. I'm so sorry that someone would text something like that to you and to think that like, just we were so far removed that that was okay. You know, I remember when I was studying in high school and I think there's this thing, I guess, because I was in Smyrna, Georgia, and we were near a big Air Force base. And so sometimes you're hearing a lot of like really loud sounds that are like have nothing. It's nothing's wrong. It's just like a plane exhaust or something like that. But for some reason, one night I was hearing it and it scared the crap out of me. So I called my the the guy the teen worker that i was associated with and i told him that i was scared and he essentially was like yeah i mean i would be scared too because think about this like if something were to happen you'd go to hell mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. and that feeling of like oh he's right mm-hmm. but like i was i was like 16 15 or 16 and like this is what you're going to tell me like and, and looking back i'm like that was messed up but in the moment i was like well he's right Right. But God, that just in the moment you think we're just throwing around these to do. You're throwing around this stuff with like no real understanding of what you're really doing to kids, what you're doing to to their psyches. I mean, truly to our psyches, the amount of anxiety we carry with us, because for Mm -hmm. me, I was for I was so afraid of dying, which isn't that Mm -hmm. the opposite of what Christianity is supposed to be about. It's this freedom for eternity Mm -hmm. to know that you're safe and that God has you and you don't have to do anything perfect to get it. That's the whole point of the cross. Right. Mm -hmm. But the opposite of that was the case. I mean, same thing for me, Roy, like this fear, especially after I left that I would I didn't this is bizarre, but I I didn't walk by mailboxes like I would try and walk far away from them if I was walking down a street and because um I look back I'm like where did that come from well when I was little and uh, this is not church related um someone had put like this bomb in our mailbox I think I was like four or five and it went off in the middle of the night and my dad called 911 and no one was hurt 
but there was like a bomb in the mailbox. So that had happened in my life. And then I had constantly my whole life been told, you know, if you died, you're going to go to hell or unless you're a disciple. Right. And even as a disciple, it's like kind of always hung over your head. Like, are you really? I mean, they do rebaptize people. Right. So you're constantly yeah. wondering, like, am, did I actually do it right the first time? And I need to prove that I'm doing it right. And um, and this fear is just driven into you that you yeah. will go to hell for eternity, eternity. And it will not change. And and they're also telling you that, like, we are the church that are not going to just tell you what you want to hear. We're going to tell you the truth. And so when they would say things like that to you, Roy, we're like, well, you know, you should be scared because you go to hell or even shortly after I left the church and the massacre happened. And, and you're so used to that rhetoric and to not saying, um, that's messed up. You're used to saying, oh, that's the truth. And they're willing to tell yeah. me the truth. Mm -hmm. And so you internalize that and that anxiety is real. So after I left the church, I wouldn't walk by a mailbox because I was like, God is going to smite me and make a mailbox blow up while I'm right next to it. And I'm going to die and go to hell. That was my fear for, I, I was, you know, I was 18 when I left. I was probably 22 before this weird mailbox fear. And I don't even know how those two things came together. Like what happened when I was little to our mailbox and my anxiety after leaving the church, but somehow those two things uh, fused together. And and that level of anxiety still exists for me. I mean, it, it it's it's less because I've had to put in a lot of work through therapy, through my own development, my relationship with God, finding new Christian mentors and disciples, if you want to call them that, that have completely retrained me in my thinking of God. Um, but that has been, you know, 15 years of of work and change, and it still stays with me. I mean. And my anxiety is not something that has just gone away. And I can absolutely point to the root of it, just like I'm sure you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I <clears throat> I felt like listing like I mean, when I left, I left at like 27. And I had kind of like I I kind of had left and come back like I did. I left in high school because I got tired and then came back into college and then was in it for a few years. And then, you know, I got kind of lucky in the sense that like for some reason i just had people that never that were always it just felt like there were four or five people that were on my side and maybe it was because it was after it had been years after the letter had gone out and for those of you that don't know at one point in our church this guy wrote a letter and it was sent to every church in our in our movement and it kind of broke the church down and so i kind of got to like leave slowly and so there were friends of mine that were just, I don't know, like they never would, they were just weren't people that a would ever say that in the beginning. Like, <laughs> I, I think that if, if a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine heard somebody say that he probably would have hit that person or been like, what are you saying? Like realize like what? like, it doesn't make sense. And so there was that, like, I don't know, like I definitely felt ostracized and alone, but <clears throat> honestly like in atlanta people started just forming their own little churches and like my parents formed a church with some just pretty decent open-hearted like good-hearted people and so stuff like that would have never happened but it was that f just fear like i'm i mean i'm 10 years into therapy and still feeling fear like I'm a bad person. I've got to keep working because if I don't, 
if I don't, if I slow down, I will lose my relationships. I will lose what I have and it will, will be my fault and I deserve it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like so that. Sad. Um, well, because I mean, talk about the opposite of unconditional love. Yeah, I know. It's so conditional. And we were love. told it was the only kind of unconditional love was their love. And yet it was the most conditional love. You know, I remember being told you're never going to find a true relationship that has meaning mm-hmm. outside of the church that everybody, yeah. these, you know, <laughs> other organizations are all gossipy and they talk behind each other's back. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not these deep, true relationships. Oh, my gosh. I left that church. Of course, as you know, everyone stops <laughs> talking to you. And I'll, if you want me to tell you, uh, feel free to ask me later how it all went down when I left because it was pretty crazy. Um, but I remember I decided to join an all-female acapella group and a sorority. And I was like, I just, I don't have any friends. I don't know what to do, you know? Um, my whole world disappeared. And um, here we are 15 years later, actually more than that, uh, 17 years later. And I have a group of 15 girls from my acapella group. We get together every single year. They're my best friends in the whole world. They supported me mm-hmm. with, just incredible a love when my mom passed away they've been there for me every stage of life i have three kids you know i met them when yeah. i was 18 and mm-hmm. and they're there and we have we've been through it together and they're my best friends my sorority sisters same thing same thing like the best friendships i've ever had and they did not attach our friendship to that organization like they were there for me no matter what i did how i messed up I've needed forgiveness for them. Very real relationships, right? Like we're not going to be perfect if we've known people for 17 years and they've stuck by my side. And I know without a fact that if I had quit the acapella group or if I had quit the sorority, they still would have been there. And we're not in those organizations anymore. They ended at the end of college, but we are still so tight. And I don't have to worry about them talking behind my back, like under the guise of how she's doing spiritually, right? There's never been more gossip involved in my life than when I was part of the church because they said, mm-hmm. well, it's us holding you accountable and like talking through how to help and all that stuff. It's just crap, right? Like my relationships now give me so much less anxiety because I'm not worried that they're judging me, that they're questioning everything I do, that they're questioning my intentions. My friends love me and they think yeah. I'm great. They think I'm a flawed human being that's super annoying at times. And sometimes I get a little bit too much of an attitude when I'm hungry and I've made mistakes and I've hurt them before. And they come back yeah. and they talk to me about it. We talk through it. We might go through six months of it being a little bit weird until we can hang out in person again and we get past it and we get through it. And they're messy and they are wonderful because they are yeah. unconditional. That's awesome. And it's awesome that you were able to find that and land into that because there's a lot of people that didn't, and there's a lot of people that never found that. Um, and you know, it's, you know, it, I do think something that keeps people stable and sane are good relationships and having that is very important and having someone to talk to and having messy relationships, you know, like, I love that you use the word messy. It's like, you know, my friends think I'm dumb sometimes and they don't want to talk to me for a while, but but we're still there and we're still like connected and they're there and I'm, I'm lucky to have found them and I'm lucky to have that sounding board in my life, Um, which is it. Yeah, it's great. Um, I do want to kind of go back a little bit to kind of get perspective on like, what was it like? Because I. I love that you mentioned teen camp and our camp because there were positive things when I was a kid camp for us was one of them. We had the swamp. It wasn't, I remember hearing about our camp. Um, 
because you guys like up in Vir- here in Virginia, y'all didn't associate a lot with us. And like, we didn't consider y'all the Southeast, you know, because we had no, I've been to the swamp, though. I had um <clears throat> one of my interests, you know, a boy yeah. I liked. Uh, oh, you went Georgia. to so you went to camp. You went to the swamp. I actually went to the New Year's party at the swamp one year. Oh yeah, I remember you telling me about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, camp was probably the only place I ever felt freedom and joy and stuff like that. And so, like, Same. so, so our camp was like for kids. Yeah, I think through fifth or sixth grade, and then you go to teen camp. Mm-hmm. And where was was teen camp like it was like sleep away or was it like both were sleep away. So you could oh, start okay. going to sleep away camp. Gosh, I think as young as like first grade in our camp. And yeah. so I didn't move to Virginia. I lived in California until third grade. And so third yeah. grade was my first year in Virginia. We were still members out in California, but I don't remember a camp out there in San Diego. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but yeah, since third grade and I loved it. Still some of the best memories of my life. Some of the best ones I can possibly remember. I mean, just the shaving cream fights and <clears throat> mm-hmm. I don't know, the cabins and the horseback riding. I mean, I, you know, we I'm a horse. I was a horseback rider equestrian. It was like my thing growing up that and singing. Uh-huh. So I got to do that at camp, which was really fun. And the friendships and the the raids and the dares. And I mean, it was the best time. It was just amazing. And even the devotionals and like praying in the morning around a fire or um, those were really special connecting times to God because it felt so free from the usual. You're around people that you're not usually around. You're around even adults that you're not usually around. So you're not around those people that you associate with controlling you. And Man, I loved it. And I'm the first to say that being in the church as a kingdom kid was certainly not all bad. Like, is there trauma still associated with it? Of course. But um, it kept me out of a lot of trouble. I do have a really strong foundation of scripture now as I rebuilt my relationship Mm -hmm. with God. I was like, oh, wow, I do know a lot of scripture, which is helpful, especially once I realized how to put scripture in context. Um, (laughs) And uh, and the relationships, I mean. Gosh, it was a lot of fun there. And and Mm -hmm. like you said, relationships are really important. And the ICOC does that really well because it is part of the control tactic, but it also is just you're part of this community. And so you you feel included and you feel close to these people. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people when they leave, they never find that again, that that depth, because you are forced to have these deep conversations that attach you to people. And um, Mm -hmm. that's what makes it so painful when you leave, because those relationships are gone and you um you feel so exposed and so sad and you miss these people um Mm -hmm. but while you're in it there's certainly positive you know aspects to it and and my friends since left i have three of them that we were best friends in the church the four of us um starting from i met them at one of them since i was eight she's still my best friend to this day another at 12 one i knew since i was a kid our parents were friends but we became really close when i was 12 or 13 so we've been really close we all left after, like not at the exact same time, but over mm-hmm. a five year span and managed to keep those relationships afloat as we could throughout that process until we were all out. And now we are each other's people who get it. And I still have those friendships that are really deep yeah. and these are people who've been there for my whole life and understand what it was like to be in the ICOC. And I'm so grateful that the ICOC gave me those people. Yeah. Just don't. How did you go to, on dates at teen camp, like sleepaway camp? Like you said, oh, you they put you dates. on a bus. Yeah. And we went to Golden they put Crown. you on a bus. Yeah. Yeah. So you left you left campus uh, for the camp 
uh, for a night, an evening you would meet up. So the boys always ask the girls. Girls don't get uh -huh. to ask. Yep. So you wait to see if you get asked on a date. So the first three days of camp, everyone's just trying to flirt with whoever they can to see if they are going to uh -huh. get asked on a date. Yeah. And then you, if you're a disciple, you wait to get asked. And then you meet up with your date at like 6 p.m. or 5 p.m. on a Thursday or whenever date night is. It's one night of the week. And you all get on a school bus or whatever. And they take you to Golden Corral and you have your, your date. <laughs> they take you to Golden Corral. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, we uh our camp was so far away or the swamp was so far away from anything um and you we did like the kids didn't leave. Like I became a counselor uh in the Same. camp and we would find we used to, I mean you would hear like people say weasel time. You're just trying to get around to that girl or boy that you liked. Um I think the only time we were able to get away like as counselors was you had like an hour, hour and a half break when the kids, if you weren't leading a devotional before lunch to go and we'd go into town, there was a Zaxby's or a pizza hut. And so sometimes you would like go with a girl or something, but man, that would have been wild to get busted golden corral. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. You know, listen, this is a whole nother thing too, is the secrecy of relationships. Cause I mentioned oh. that I was like a little bit of a boy crazy type of youngster, uh -huh. um, which of course then like the amount of talking behind my back that about that was yeah. pretty extreme. Um, and you know, I will say, I'm sure, I, I'm sure you've experienced this too. They would identify what category of sinner you were kind of and then that's yeah. something we'd always bring up and always, no one ever talked to me about any other sin basically except for like sexual purity because yep. I always had a crush or always had an interest or boys liked me or whatever and um and so I was like categorically like the the impure girl right and but there's my other friend girl my other friend was like the rebellious one and then I had another one who was the like closed off one and she's just not good at being vulnerable and open and she's kind of secretive. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, everyone kind of has their thing. So mine was like being the like church hoe bag, apparently, you know, <laughs> and yeah. so I, um, I would say that that has affected relationships and uh -huh. that side of my life tremendously over the years, because I think in any teenage subculture, there's a level of like secrecy and trying to get away with dating when you're a teenager, mm -hmm. whether you are, in a church environment or not, you know, parents have rules surrounding it and that kind of thing. But it was so extreme in our church that I only learned relationships and romance in the context of secrecy and in the context wow. of, um, of trying to get away with it and trying to explore without getting in trouble. And, that has found its way into relationships through my whole life until my marriage, which thank the Lord is so healthy and like so great. Um, but he even yeah. knows that even within my marriage, like I struggle sometimes because there, uh, there is no secrecy attached to it. There is no unhealthiness attached to it. And it's hard for me sometimes to feel that sense of romance and excitement because I associate that with secrecy. And so what that looked like in my early 20s after I left the church. I had left the church with um, kind of with a boyfriend. And wow. uh, and that relationship was really uh, based on my need to have somebody in my life those two years after I lost everybody. Um, but once I got out of that relationship and and started exploring as a young woman, it was very clear that I liked guys who were unavailable. 
like emotionally or otherwise, right? Like I, that was what I was drawn to because I did not know how to have a relationship without the secrecy attached. And so that's something that even as I raise my kids, I'm very cognizant of is like, hey, we all need boundaries. Like, especially when they become teenagers, like I want to offer them those boundaries and that safety. And um, there, I, I do believe in that, but to not present it like you're a terrible person for having these, I don't know, this desire to explore that for mm-hmm. liking somebody, for wanting to spend time with them, for having sexual attraction to them. Like these are all very normal human experiences. And if we can take the secrecy and the shame out of it, then it actually allows us to find that romance and attraction in a healthier space, which is what we want for people in the long run. Um, and so that that experience in the church is something that I, I I think affects me very much to this day. Yeah, I think for me, so being the the male, you know, our experience with relationships was so different than y'all's because in a lot of ways, I felt like there was a lot of stuff that was on us to protect you guys and to provide for you guys that like I feel this immense amount of pressure in you know, in my marriage and in and probably every relationship that I've ever had, there was a pressure and it's a pressure to like show up. It's a pressure to protect. It's a pressure to make sure that things are looking a certain way. And when it doesn't, or when I, I, and I can't handle that pressure. So it just, I just shut down. And I think that's because it was, it was really tough for us because I think for us, it felt like we had to protect you from all of the dirty, evil guys in the world. And so we had to do like dates had to be spectacular. If you were going to ask a girl to be your girlfriend, it had to be this immense, crazy thing. Like I remember a friend of mine, when he asked the girl he liked to be his girlfriend, they went on a horse drawn carriage through Atlanta that was filled with roses to be his girlfriend, like stuff like that. And it's kind of nice. I mean, I get the thing, but you just, it wasn't like, I don't know. Like, I didn't feel like it was from like my heart to do that. It was like, I just had to do that. It was an expectation. I mean, when they would announce yeah. it on Sundays when somebody started dating somebody else, oh right? it's like, like it's not, it wasn't like a, it's not a, it's <sighs> basically like getting engaged. <laughs> I hated those. Oh gosh. I hated those. Mm-hmm. Like just sitting there and you're just like, Oh, I, I don't have one yet. Dang it. I'm 20 and there's no girlfriend. I guess uh, something's wrong with me. I'm an old bitty, you know? Yeah. Or if someone was getting engaged and they did it the right way, they would get like a standing ovation. You oh know? my gosh! Right, like they haven't even kissed yet, and yeah, they, they had, yeah, you they know, saving, saving the kiss for the the wedding. Right, oh all gosh. of that, and it's interesting to hear your male perspective on mm-hmm. what your role was. Yeah, because you were the protector, you were the provider, you were, um. I, you know, that's interesting because then as the woman, of course, everything is don't make him struggle. Right. So everything, oh you gosh, wear, yeah. everything you do, it's about not leading, don't ever lead him on. Don't do anything. Right. And yeah, it's just, and all that did was instill fear. You know, I was afraid of every situation I was in. I was afraid of like what happened here or like, 
oh, our, our fingers touched. Oh God, we're going to be right. overcome by our, by our desires that we can't control. You know? Do you know what I think it did to me? I think it made me over-sexualize myself. It, I think, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. It oh, over-sexualized me as well. Mm-hmm. All it did was over-sexualize. Yeah. A I lot mean, of I don't people. think I would have been as aware of it if they hadn't been no. so obsessed with talking about it. Oh my gosh. And and it was this elusive thing that you just had to, you know, for us, like, you know, you know, you talk about secrets. It was like, you know, for the guys, it was like secretly trying to find an outlet or an image or something. And then it also just instilled this weird, like over sexualization between male friendships that Mm. was just, it's just this weird, like. It's hard to like, I mean, even saying that feels awkward, but like there would be this weird, like just what we would talk about, how the, you know, it's just like you could, the only outlet you had was your friends. And it wasn't like you're sitting there doing these sexual things, but there was just like this, oh, I don't even know how to describe it. I think it. I understand what you mean. It's like the conversation can surround it. The innuendo yeah. surrounds yes. because you're not allowed to have those close relationships with people of the opposite sex. It's no. far too tempting, of course. Yeah. Not that they would ever consider someone might be attracted to someone of the same sex. That's a whole different mm-hmm. ballgame. But, you know, they assumed that you could not have a friendship, a real relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And I mean, there's some truth to that. I mean, I especially as a teenager, I, I kind of believe that yeah. you're going to explore mean, a little sure. bit with somebody like uh, if you become friends with them. Um, uh, just to determine whether or not you want to take that further. But again, that is, I don't know, evolutionary or like biologically sound, right? Uh-huh. Like you're going to kind of explore what partner you want. Um, but yeah, like there's this sense of uh, I was so worried or constantly, I wouldn't say I was so worried. I was uh, constantly told that I was going to make men struggle that I was like, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, well, then I must I must have some sexual pieces to me. Right. And so that almost made me feel more sexy. Right. Even though I'm covering yeah. it all up, mm-hmm. I'm being told that, like, if I wear spaghetti strap, my collarbone is going to set some dudes off, you know. And so, <laughs> you know, I think that really added to this like boy craziness of mine because I felt yeah. like I had this power. and I wasn't supposed to use it, but I have the power, you know. And, yeah. And so, it was interesting. And I certainly, I mean, I got in trouble. So I eventually uh, was threatened with being disfellowshipped because. Um, yeah, I was going to talk. I wanted to get to that, to why you left, mm-hmm. um, because I think that's that's kind of the, you know, what got you out of it and stuff like that. Because um, this feeds into that for sure. It does. It does. I was going to. The only thing I was going to add is like for us, it like would when like everything is wrong. And you don't even get to like see why or understand why you just seek it out mm-hmm. because you want to understand why. Like, so it was constant thing. Of, why can't I see a naked woman? It's well, I'm going to go find why is this such a wrong thing instead of like integrating this with us, you know, like, why can't you hug this person full frontal? You know, like I got, I got, discipled because apparently I hugged a girl full frontal and it made her struggle and made I made her pulled, struggle. I got pulled aside and that's so like, interesting. Cause I always thought yeah. it's about making dudes struggle. Cause they like feel our chest against their, no, I got, I got like, pulled whatever. aside <laughs> and someone was like, yeah, you made her really uncomfortable with how you hugged. And I was like, what? 
And I immediately went to like the three girls that I knew. And I was like, I just got discipled for this. And they were like, so embarrassed. And like, this was stupid, whatever. But anyway, it just, like that's what all of that, it just over-sexualizes. It gets the gears going really fast to find it instead of like, and you find it in the ways that are like not productive or not building up or not growing of their growth. So yeah, so anyway, that yeah. secretive part, it, it all becomes secretive and that's so, not yeah. happy. So you left at 18. And so yeah. like, wh- why did like, what were the cracks that were showing? What was happening that made you want to leave? Okay. So uh, again, the boy crazy thing that was partly true and partly just the identity that they placed upon me. And, uh, and so when I was 16, I uh, kind of hooked up, made out with whatever, like still very virginal, but with the a son of one of the elders. <laughs> was, you go big, huh? Go you big or big. go home, baby. And so, yeah. um, you know, there was there was that little experience, and eventually, I felt so guilty. I confessed it, and uh-huh. um, and so obviously we were like not allowed to talk to each other. And it was like this very dramatic thing, because like I said, I was pretty heavily in the, in the front of the church. Like people knew me. I sang a lot as like on Sundays and uh, you know, it was just like seen as one of the teens, the teens. And, um, and then this young man being the elder son was a big deal too. And so I, so that was pretty dramatic. And then let's see, two years later when I was 18, I was senior. I met someone outside of the church. It was actually a pretty, uh, very imbalanced and inappropriate relationship. And, uh, I wouldn't call it a relationship, but somebody much older outside of the church came on to me. Um, and, being young and 17 and uh didn't know anything and uh i you know kind of fell into that and so when i confessed it there was only one person who showed any sort of concern that someone that significantly older than a 17 year old had pursued that again not someone in the church but like they were worried about there was one person it was a male who was worried about me and my like psychological involvement at that age, especially considering uh-huh. how sheltered I was and how, I mean, I did not know anything even about how the human body worked in a sexual manner. And so, yeah. um, instead I was just in deep trouble, you know, <laughs> and this all came out actually on a missions trip in India, I confessed. <clears throat> um, and so Uh-oh. then from there they, it was pretty wild. They like, did they fly you home? <laughs> no, they didn't fly me home, but I wasn't not, not allowed to speak to any men, like anyone on the trip with us or any of the men in India. Um, and then they started questioning me because I, this was my second trip to India. And so they were like, I guess two years earlier, there had been, um, uh, again, an older married guy that was Indian, like he and his wife had helped host. And, uh, anyways, I had known him and his wife and on the previous trip, and I guess they had marital problems. And now all of a sudden they're like two years ago, did you have an inappropriate relationship with this person? And I was like, what? Like this random Indian man? Like, what are you talking about? But they just immediately, it was like, oh, well, you must be the 
like you must have, have inappropriate relationships with like everyone, right? Mm-hmm. You are incapable of interacting with a male without seducing them is essentially what they were saying to me. Again, age 17, still a virgin and still don't know anything. And there's no concern with that. The fact that I was essentially groomed by a, whatever, 31 year old guy, 32 when I was 17, uh-huh. you know, so I get in big trouble for that. So those are two years apart. Elder son, and then and both of those are ones I confessed for the record because I legitimately wanted them to stop. Like I wanted to do better. I wanted to be better mm-hmm. for God. I understood what the scriptures called for me. So it wasn't like they backed me into a corner. Like this was me willing, trying to listen, change, repent, all of the things. Um, and then so that was I was 17. That was the summer of 2006. And then I go to college. I um, six months later ish meet a boy, not part of the church, invite him to the church. He gets baptized um, and we start wanting to date. They say no, given my background and my history and given that he's, you know, a quote, young Christian. Um, And so we started just seeing each other kind of secretly on campus. And um, again, with secrecy, do I think we actually could have had a really like pure and healthy, godly relationship had they let that happen? I actually do. But because we were told no, we went yeah. into secrecy mode and with yep. secrecy mode comes all of the other secrets that can come with a relationship. And so we started hooking up and doing all the things you're not supposed to do. And um, actually what happened with this one is I had not gotten to the point of wanting to confess, though I felt really stressed about it because it is very stressful to live a double life. You're going to church trying yeah. to be mm-hmm. this perfect person, knowing that you're doing something you're not supposed to do. And um Eventually, I think one of my best friends in the church saw like a Facebook message or something between the two of us. And so they knew something was going on. She like low key tried to get me to confess to her. I still didn't. And then eventually she said, hey, I know about this. And if you don't confess it, I think the thing I don't remember if I ended up confessing it on my own accord or if she said, if you don't do it, I will. I'll tell somebody. Um, And so this guy and I went and told the campus leaders and they said, all right, well, this is Matthew. You've now messed up three Mm -hmm. times, elder son, older guy, and now this. So according to their interpretation of that scripture in Matthew, where if someone sins once, you bring it to them Mm one-on-one. If they bring twice, you bring it to a, you know, between a group, the third time you bring it in front of the church. And then after that, you have nothing to do with them. Well, they thought I was like a little bit on the edge of bring it to the church and have nothing to do with them. They couldn't really decide what their decision was going to be. Was I going to be disfellowshipped as in kicked out of the church, have nothing to do with them? Or were they just going to bring it in front of the church? So they started with don't come to church until we make this decision, um, except for this Sunday or whatever. I think it was a Sunday and not a Wednesday. We're going to tell the church. Oh, God. And so there I go age 18 now sitting in front of the church, everyone I've ever known in my whole life. And they say Shannon has been sexually immoral with so-and-so they named him as well, even though this was his first offense, might I add. Um, and and he, what was he, he wasn't on stage, was he? He, I, neither of us were on stage. We were oh, in audience, okay. but everyone knew who I was. I mean, obviously, like I said, I'd been in that mm-hmm. church since I was in that area since I was eight years old. So they all, everyone knew me. And, um, and so Shannon, was blah, 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 and they said immoral, which in ICOC, there's a distinction between being sexually yep. immoral and sexually impure. Yep. I was a virgin, so immoral would not apply to me. At ICOC, immoral means sex, impure yep. means mm-hmm. anything else. And yep. they said the word immoral, so now everyone thinks that I 
have had sex with this guy. And um, that's weird too, right? Because when you hear someone had sex with somebody, you're like, <laughs> it's just very invasive, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it wasn't even true. But was I able, was I allowed to like defend myself and be like, wait, what? You know, no, of course not. Because you're at this point, I'm like, I need to be humble. I need to repent. It doesn't matter what they think of me. But that's a very traumatic experience for hundreds of people to be told what. And that was some of my first sexual experience, too. And it wasn't even it wasn't even conveyed correctly. Like, at least tell them the truth, people, you know. And so I went through that really traumatic experience. It was it was heightened. It was incorrect. It was messed up on a thousand different levels. And um, basically, like a week or so after that, after many my whole my days were just filled with different people who wanted to rebuke me. So meet so-and-so in this room at this time. And I remember being called stupid over and over again. Like you are stupid because they use that scripture. I think it's in like Proverbs where the Bible says the word stupid. And so they feel like yeah. that is the term that they can use because it's biblical. And so I'm talking about how stupid I was, um, comparing me to the prostitutes of the Bible and the seductresses and all of that. And about a week later, I didn't, I hadn't, or maybe no, it was more than that. Two or three weeks after uh, the first confession. Um, I hadn't talked to this guy because we weren't supposed to communicate. And uh, he texted me and said, hey, I'm having a really hard time. Now, he was not a kingdom kid. He had only been in the church for a couple months. And so I don't know. I mean, that was like uh, probably a pretty ridiculous experience for him as somebody who was trying to have this relationship with God. And now he's going through this. And uh, he texted him having a hard time. And I remember just kind of not even thinking. And I texted back, I'm so sorry. And I realized because I texted him back, I would have to lie about that because they said if you text him or talk to him, you're immediately disfellowshipped. Like that's an immediate we've made our decision. And uh. at this point, I texted him back and then I was like, oh, no, either I have to lie about this, which I am so tired of lying. I'm so tired of it or yeah. I'm going to get kicked out. So I just need to leave anyway. So, you know, I texted him back and I said, oh, my gosh, probably like a couple hours later, I I, I texted you earlier. I am not allowed to. They're going to kick me out of church. Do, are, are you planning on staying in? If not can we leave this weekend? I'll leave a note for my roommate. You know, I was living in a dorm with a disciple because you have to live with a disciple. And yeah. um, I said, I I guess I, I guess I have to leave and I, I don't want to stick around for like the aftermath. So can we go to, up to your parents' house in Northern Virginia? And he was like, yeah, like, let's just get out of here. Let's, you know, do this. And so I'm like sweating, right? Because I know I'm about, my whole life's about to change. I'm about to lose everyone yeah. I know. I know what happens to fallaways. My brother had fallen away before me. Both of my parents, I had been told my whole life, like I'm the last, you know, not my whole life, but since they had left, you're the last one. Like, don't be like the rest of your family. Like oh, I was God. very aware of what they'd put my brother through and what they'd put my mother through. I mean, yeah, they, uh, my family had already gone through it. And um, so I knew it was coming. And uh, I left a note for my roommate who I had known since I was eight years old and we were now in college together. So someone I had known for a long time and uh, left her note, said I'm leaving and this is why and got in the car with him and went to Northern Virginia for the weekend. And that's when I I had had to turn off my phone because I got so many texts and phone calls and voicemails um, from different leaders and people in the church just losing their minds at me. And um, when I got back, she had moved out three days later, uh, two days later, someone I had known forever, you know, and and everyone stops talking to you. You no longer exist. You're called to fall away and they treat you like you're dead. And they did that. These people I'd known yeah. my whole life, my roommate. And so I came back to an empty dorm room. She had moved out. And um, wow. and then from there, that was that. And then I, you know, got that text message 10 days later about the massacre and 
Um, the voicemails, I eventually just deleted them instead of listening to all of them. There were many. I bet. Just laying into me, threatening me, of course, mentioning hell over and over and over again. And um, yeah, I, I later found out a lot more about what happened when I left because my girlfriends who left after me were like, yeah. girl, you don't even know the half of what happened when you left. They held entire Bible studies that I was the center of. And like, <laughs> they were like we haven't had any baptisms this semester because Shannon was in the church and she's just like the prostitute in this scripture. When they let the prostitute come to church, they didn't thrive. And as soon as they got her out of the church, they started saving people again. And Shannon <laughs> was the prostitute of this church. Mind you, still a virgin. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they had entire Bible studies dedicated to it. There was this one like random married dude that I guess um, emailed like the whole church like <laughs> and said everyone needs to defriend Shannon Laco or I guess my maiden name was Oliver. Sorry, I've just identified myself. I don't really care. It's okay. Um, uh, I unfriend her on Facebook. So everyone I'd ever known unfriended me on Facebook. And these are people, like I said, I've known my whole life. Um. Thank God my brother had left before me. Thank God my mom had left before me. My my dad left when I was like three and my they got divorced when I was 11. So he was very much out of it. But um, mm -hmm. I'm sure he was glad to know that I finally left because he was one of the first people uh, to identify ICOC as a cult mm -hmm. when I was like three. Um, so obviously that put a strain on his marriage to my mom and they did not last. Uh, so they divorced when I was like 11. Um, but anyway, they... Yeah. So I had other people to lean on a little bit when I left, but um, it was a very dramatic exit. They made a, yeah. they made a statement out of me. In fact, even just the, earlier this year, I connected with um, uh, that woman who had put out the videos about the different studies and breaking down mm -hmm. the, the brainwashing and said, hey, thanks for making these. And uh, and she's like, wait, are you Shannon? Oliver like your maiden name's Oliver I'm like yeah like I don't think we met and she was like no I joined I was met a month after you left and you she was like you were like a celebrity I knew your name I knew who you were everyone talked about don't let it happen to you what happened to Shannon Oliver what she did and they I mean she was like I felt like I knew your entire sexual history I knew everything about you I knew mm. all, all of the things and they would show your picture like what? it was mm -hmm. yeah like it was so bizarre. I'm like, look back. I'm like, uh, that like the fact that there was a random married dude that I didn't even really know emailing an entire church to unfriend me on Facebook because he was afraid I was going to start like posting inappropriate pictures like that's so creepy. It's so creepy. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't even. Oh, man. It's just like. It's funny because there's a lot of shock, but then there's also like, no, of course that would happen because that's just how it happened, mm -hmm. you know, which is the, it's so weird to like to be thinking both of those at the same time. You know, I think being away from it is the shock. But like I, I like to like as you were saying, and I was like trying to put myself in like the church and like, yeah, I mean, that would that would be how it would happen. And it it. It's just, oh my God, you, I mean, I would hear of people that were disfellowship, like, you know, in Atlanta, it was so big that it wasn't as, you know, you would just hear someone randomly, but, you know, I just, you know, did he, did the boy get, get it as bad as you? No, you, I mean, they were pretty yeah. hard on him, but no, no, it, they were like weirdly obsessed with, with me i think because they'd known me for so long and i was like 
you know, kind of charismatic and all of those things. That I think they there like. is I sort of, there is sort of a double standard there because, you know, y'all's job was to not make a struggle. Mm-hmm. And so like, because you did, because something happened, it's your fault, which right. is super messed up because you're just two, you're just two kids like doing mm-hmm. what kids would do. And, oh God, that, that's, that's wild. Yeah. I think um, it's pretty, uh, pretty impressive that they were able, able to kind of make the connection between me and a prostitute when I was still a virgin. I mean, that is, that is a pretty heavy, pretty wide jump to make, I would say. I don't ever remember feeling like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I could have said that, <laughs> you know, there's just something, uh, I don't, maybe, I don't know. But I do remember, like, I remember, like, I had a friend who fell away and we were going to go see Incubus. We're going to go to a concert. We're going to drive to Nashville to see Incubus. And he and we had got tickets when he was a part of the church and then he fell away. And then I remember a friend of mine who was going to go say, if he goes, I won't go. Mm -hmm. And then I had to call and tell him that you weren't allowed to go to this concert anymore. And so this feeling of like, you know, you were just dead. I mean, it's. Oh, oh, my gosh. So my girlfriend, um, the one who's still my best friend to this day, she left maybe a year or two after me. And so that uh-huh. year or two that she was still in the church and I wasn't was obviously a lull in our relationship because mm-hmm. she had lunch with me one time after I left. And she told me after she had left years later, she was like, oh, my gosh, the amount of trouble I got in for going to lunch with you was crazy. I mean, they laid into her. She was not allowed to talk to me. And then I had another girlfriend who um, had the gall to actually have me in her wedding, even though I had left because we had our families had known each other since we uh-huh. were little. And um, people didn't go to her wedding because she asked me to <laughs> be in it. And they said, we can't go. And she was like, but my my brother is in it. And he her brother wasn't a disciple. And um, they're like, well, he's your brother so he's allowed to be in it and she's like shannon's my sister like it's the same thing like i she had not completely stopped talking to me because she was always the one they labeled as rebellious which she was she was awesome she was like i want to do what i want to do and um so she was like fine then don't come to my wedding and so some people did not come because i was in it isn't that outrageous just like standing next to her man i remember um i would get a lot of flack i was i you mentioned like the labels and I was trying to figure out what the label I would be in church. And I think one thing I, I rarely like I had to work my whole life. Like there was no, like like college I had to figure out how to pay for my parents didn't have money. So like I had to have a job in order to like essentially survive. So Mm -hmm. I never really went to a lot of things because, you know, I had to, sandwich all my classes together so that I could work three full days, three or four full days. And so I wouldn't be at Bible talks. I wouldn't be at these things. Um, And then I like to go to concerts and I liked loud music and I kind of didn't really fit the mold. And so there was like, I just, they just never knew what to do with me <laughs> essentially in church. Um, but I got to get away with a lot of stuff because I was living with my parents and my parents were disciples. So they were like, if he's living there, then okay, whatever. But, um, but yeah, like people would like, there were people wouldn't kind of hang out with me. 
I mean, I got a sense that like I was rebel, like that people were like, you know, be careful with that guy. Um, and I was in a wedding and people just kind of like didn't engage with me at all. I was mm -hmm. just kind of this, like, I was still a part of the church kind of, but just wasn't engaged with. And it was this big sense of like, be careful about these people. You know, they're going to, they might, you know, sway you the wrong way. Um, yeah, there's so hard. much exclusivity and tears of people within the church. They have uh -huh. the, you know, the people that are struggling and the people that are doing well and the people who are on fire and the people, you know, it's all, it's all tiered out. I mean, that's part of the gossip mill, you know, uh -huh. that's the talking about people spiritually is kind of defining where they land in that, in that level, the different levels. Yeah. And it sucks. It sucks to feel that it sucks to feel unworthy, you know, and to feel like you you don't understand that it's unwarranted essentially but how do you i don't know it's just it's fucked up <laughs> no other way to put it sometimes i know i did i had a secret relationship too did you yeah i i dated a girl that wasn't a part of the church for 3 or 4 months and uh luckily i i was i guess i showed i was broken enough so people didn't deal with me the way like that, I didn't get disfellowship, but I did get told, like, you got to choose her to God, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, you know, like, oh, God, it was wild. You want to hear something funny is the elder's yeah. son that I like would make out in the car with him and stuff. Um, uh -huh. Ended up playing guitar at my wedding. We are uh, still very cool with each other. We're still great. Uh -huh. uh, his wife is awesome. I was invited to his wedding. Oh, my gosh. The response when I showed up at his wedding pregnant with my husband um, <laughs> and uh, and, you know, he's getting married and even his parents. I guess he hadn't like warned them, but he like didn't. I, people were like, what? Are you? His, his dad said, what are you doing here? He literally said that to me as I'm sitting in the, oh, in the row of chairs. And I was like, uh, <laughs> Eric invited me. Also, did you know that he played guitar at my wedding? He helped me write. I wrote a song as my wedding gift to my husband. And oh, oh, I used his name. Sorry, but it, no, I don't think it cares. So, um, you know, he he and I got together multiple times before my wedding to write this song together. So he played guitar. He came up with the chords. I wrote the music and it was my wedding gift to my husband because wow. like they just didn't understand that, you know, you can actually have friendships outside of this. And also, obviously, he has left the church and I had left the church. And anytime somebody you were close to in the church leaves, um, is opportunity to kind of redevelop a friendship with them because you have something in common that is so huh. huge. And so, uh, you know, when we had both left and our other friends in our friend group from high school had left, like we all reconnected and, um, he's, he's great. His wife is awesome. And, you know, it's, it's a very normal platonic adult friendship, but it just shocked the pants off of people who were at his wedding and saw me there and met my husband. And, you know, my husband doesn't know any, I mean, he knows what I've told him about the church, but like, <laughs> so far removed from it and i was like trying to warn him i was like listen we're gonna be in this wedding his you know parents are still elders in the church there's gonna be tons of people that i haven't seen in like 15 years at this wedding and he just like didn't fully get the like level of insanity and so and my husband's very fun and outgoing and he loves uh -huh. to dance and i was like super pregnant and i certainly wasn't gonna be on the dance floor with all these people staring at me who like know my entire sexual history and made a celebrity like movie out of me and their Bible studies. And so I was just like kind of sitting on the side and, um, and he pulls this woman who is still very much in the church 
her husband's very much in the church, knew me extremely well. She was my discipler at one point when I was a teen uh-huh. and she loves to dance. And so, and she's like very fun. And so I guess there was like some salt, sort of like salsa music that came on and my husband was like, they had met and talked and we talked in a circle and he, I don't know how it happened, but he ended up grabbing her hand and like dancing with her, not in an inappropriate way. I was right there, you know, like obviously yeah. he was just uh-huh. having fun and like dancing with someone he just met like salsa and oh my god you should have seen the faces of people they were like shit and they yeah. probably thought we were swingers she but you know how they just like were they're gonna <laughs> yeah. take the extreme they're like do you see shannon's husband dancing with her and then like her husband came up and was like i'm like gonna cut in and aaron was like yeah like no problem you know he just did not know the drama of what his behavior was doing he gets back to the table and i'm like what are you doing and he's like i bet that that couple <laughs> talked about it on the drive home Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'm sure everyone's looking at me like, oh, she married this guy, this like inappropriate man who would dance with another uh, woman's husband or wife. Yeah, it was, it's crazy. Like to think about our partners, like trying to explain, like, explain all this to them. Like I met my wife like a month after I had fully split from the church. Mm-hmm. And so she's had a front row seat to all of it. Um, it's similar to my brother and his wife, I'm sure, as you know. Yeah. Mm hmm. And, you know, luckily, like, I think what helped is, you know, I eventually moved away, you know, so she's not as she doesn't get to see this. But it's always fun when my friends come up because my best friends were a part of the church and some of them kind of still are. But, you know, the the stories that she hears and like even when I met your brother, you know, it was it's just so wild how it's just it's, you know, she was like oh my God, you were part of this. And like, we, we, when we first met, we, I don't think my brother and, or your brother and I stopped talking for like an hour. We were just like, all the things. And it's crazy. That's how it is when you meet someone uh-huh. who, uh, yep. who used to be in it. Cause you just can't, you don't understand unless you were in it. And it's, I mean, yeah. I hate all this, but it's definitely kind of a trauma bond. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So like, where'd you land? Like, where have you landed? What's like relationship with God? Like, is there one? Is there not one? Like, how's what's come of all this? Yeah, I mean, long story short, basically, when I left, I didn't have a didn't have a relationship with God because uh, I didn't know how to, and yeah. I was busy exploring all the things that we weren't supposed to explore when we were in church, yeah. and I just mm-hmm. tried not to think about it. Uh, and then when I was twenty four, my mom had a very brief and quick and terrible. Uh, about of bladder cancer and she died in a five month span. Um, and like I'd mentioned earlier, she had a relationship with God that she was able to separate from the church. So she left when I was like 12, mm-hmm. um, to get married to a strong Christian who was not a member of the church. And of course the church was not going to let that happen. And so they said, choose him or the church and, you know, or him or God as they put it. Right. And she was like, uh-huh. yeah, him, because he has a very strong relationship with God and they went and found their own church and voila, they, where it lived a very beautiful, healthy, uh, God-based, had a beautiful marriage for nine years before she passed away. And, um, and when that happened, her faith was just so astonishing to me. Like she was so, uh, at peace and brave. And I just felt the spirit in that room. It was pretty incredible. I was there when she passed away, like holding her hand, my brother was there and her mom, And nobody in that moment could deny the reality of God. I think that's when it hit me that God is definitely real. 
that I believed in him, that I could not pretend or or just not have him in uh, my life at all. Um, and so I wanted to figure it out. And so that was the when I started that journey. And it's been a long process. It took a lot of intentionality of reaching out to people, um, finding people I trusted, very like intelligent, kind, gentle, patient, and wise older figures in my life uh, that were not like I, I sought them out. I like it, it was a lot of work you know, but I knew it was important to me. And, uh, and they helped me with the scriptures, studying the Bible in a way that was not, you know, brainwashing and helping me understand the like basics of Christianity outside of, um, what we had been taught at ICOC. And so, uh, that's been a journey. It's been about 11 or 12 years of, since I started that journey after my mom died in 2012, what's it now? 2023. So it's been 11 Mm -hmm. years. And, um, Now I feel so fortunate. I feel so grateful to have a relationship with God that's not fear-based. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I even just this year started leading a small group at our church on Wednesday nights. Um, I know. So God is very much the center of my life, but now being in a leadership position, um, doing that with just being very cognizant Mm-hmm. of that influence uh, and and all the things that went wrong in leadership in ICOC and making sure that um, if I'm going to be teaching about Jesus and about God and his word, that I'm going to be doing that uh, not from a place of control and rather from a place of like grace, acceptance. Like we can challenge each other. Yeah, we yeah. can try and live the way the Bible calls us to live, but also be very, very, very aware that um, this is not about being good or being uh, right or, you know, trying to be accepted by me or anyone in the church. Like this is this is a personal growth filled journey with relationships that have unconditional love based on what the Bible calls us, how how the Bible calls us to treat one another. Um, And so, yeah, so it's been quite a journey uh, to get where I am now. But yeah, I, it makes me sad, honestly, looking back at at so many people <clears throat> who've left the church and don't have relationships with God anymore. And I certainly don't blame them for not because it's yeah. it's hard to de- redevelop that. And if my mom hadn't died, I don't know if I would have. Right. Like, I just don't know uh, that because that just made it brought such clarity. Um, and so I've put in that work. But to rebuild something like that uh, is, is no easy task, but I'm grateful to be here. Cause I don't know how I would go through just daily life without that comfort and that peace that God brings. Yeah. What was it like going into a church for the first time after that? Oh my gosh. Just actively having, yes. Very, well, I wouldn't say triggering. Uh, I tried to, <laughs> triggering still like to watch any preaching online of like ICOC. I tried to watch like a <laughs> sermon once online and I yeah. literally oh. almost threw up. It was awful. Yeah. Um, but no, I wouldn't say going into a different kind of church because it was so separate in my brain than ICOC. You're told that all yeah. the other churches are not like true and real. So I didn't view it as similar to ICOC. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of having to uh, actively remind myself not to be judgmental. Like to not just judge yeah. everyone, uh-huh. um, uh-huh. and 
to not assume intentions and I mean, not to just see them as watered down. That was a very, very long process. And that's why I needed those one-on-one relationships to teach me and show me uh, from people who really were living it day in and day out. Um, And I, you know, I'm not going to say that the ICOC is wrong, that there's not a common pitfall throughout many Protestant churches of people who are just Sunday Christians or whatever. Like, of course that does exist, but taking the judgment out of that and I mean, truly taking the judgment out, saying like, this is not on me to decide whether or not these people are saved or are doing it right. Like, I'm going to focus on my relationship with God. And um, and I have just found so many wonderful, amazing, strong men and women of God within these congregations. And they're not awesome. held accountable in the same way that ICOC was, right? Like, if Aaron and I mm-hmm. don't go to our small group on Sundays where we like have a bunch of like married people that get together after church and talk about the scriptures, like... If we're not there one week, someone might text and be like, hey, you guys good? Like, we missed you this morning. And we're like, oh, we went yeah. to Disney this weekend. I'm like, oh, that's so much fun. We're going next weekend. Like, there's no like, hey, why'd you put Disney in front of God, right? Like, there's not that kind of accountability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they care about me, right? Isn't that what we want? We want people who, like, care that you're not there judging you for not being there. Um, um, It's been great. I've just developed such wonderful relationships. And I'm, I, I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, we've landed on a church and I have to, I put all that stuff that, cause I, you know, I want to pick it apart. I want to like judge everything. If ever somebody talks to me, like we're pretty new in it. Like we're not really like diving in. We're doing it mainly to kind of like, we want our son to kind of hear something mm-hmm. like, and like it not, not, we don't want everything to come from us per se. Like, but uh, yeah, I have to actively put that part of me that wants to pick everything apart, judge people for what they're saying and like, you know, all of that aside when I go in and it's tough. But um, yeah, that's awesome. So like the big question, we were in a cult. What do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I Before this past year, I would have said, no. No, I don't think so. Like, I think it was just like a really intense legalistic church. Um, But given some of the things I've learned about those studies and how they were put together, um, the different cult-like and brainwashing techniques that absolutely were employed, I'm going to go with, I'm actually going to lean towards yes. I know it's not a yes or no question because there's some gray space there. Um, But were we in a cult? I'm more comfortable using that word now than I've ever been before. Yeah. Okay. Well, Shannon, thank you for... I mean, thank you for sharing the story. Thank you for allowing me to to put your story out there. Um, you know, it's been awesome. It was a great conversation. Uh, if there's anybody listening that like knows someone or you guys were a part of it and you want to talk about it, you know, contact me through Instagram or you know where to find me. And um, yeah, well, Shannon, thanks. And uh, thanks for being here. You're so welcome. And I did want to just be able to like a uh, shameless plug here that I. Also oh, yeah. I forgot. Have. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Talk about it. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm not going to talk long at all. I just it's at paring down P-A-R-I-N-G. Um, and it's all about decluttering your home and your life and even your beliefs uh, and really getting to the root of of what you want for your life, whether that's what you own inside your house or um cool you know, your beliefs and values. And so it's called the Paring Down Podcast every Tuesday morning. Come join me. Look for that. Yeah. Guys, thanks for listening. And uh, you'll hear from me soon. All right.